Lesson 4 for April 21 to 27, ready for teaching on Sabbath, April 28. Salvation and the End Time. Sabbath afternoon, April 21. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week. And as we do so, we just want to thank you for what we've learnt so far in this quarter. And as we look at salvation in the end time, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. May the words from the Bible jump out at us. May they impress us with what you want us to know. And may our lives be such that we may show others that you really are a God that we can trust. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's read that again, 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. One fascinating but crucial difference between Christianity and non-Christian religions is that while the others emphasize what their founders have taught them, they do not emphasize what their founders have done for them. And that's because whatever their founders may have done for them, it cannot save them. All these leaders can do is try to teach the people how to save themselves. In contrast, Christians emphasize not only what Jesus taught, but what he did. This is because what Christ did provides the only means by which we are saved. Christ's incarnation in human flesh, as recorded in Romans 8.3, his death on the cross, Romans 5.8, his resurrection, 1 Peter 1.3, and his ministry in heaven, Hebrews 7.25, these acts alone are what save us. It's certainly not anything in ourselves. As Ellen White writes in Faith and Works, page 24, If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man, and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. End of quote. This wonderful truth is especially important for us amid the perils and deceptions of the last days. Sunday, April 22, The Love of the Father Not too long before the cross, Jesus spoke with his inner circle about how people can come to the Father through him. It was then that Philip said in John 14 verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Question, how did Jesus respond to Philip in John 14, verse 9. What does his response teach us about the Father? What misconceptions about God should his response clear up? John 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
So how can you say, show us the Father? Some people say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of justice in comparison to the God of the New Testament, who is full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. They draw a distinction between the two that is not valid. He is the same God, with the same traits in both the Old and New Testaments. One reason Christ came to this world was to reveal the truth about God the Father. Through the centuries, wrong ideas about him and his character have been widespread, not just among the heathen, but among God's chosen nation as well. As we read in The Desire of Ages, page 22, The earth was dark through misapprehension of God, that the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. End of quote. These were some of the reasons that Jesus came to this earth. God does not change. If we knew all the facts surrounding events in the Old Testament, we would find God just as merciful in the Old Testament as he is in the New. Scripture declares in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And that God does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, it says in Hebrews 13, verse 8. Remember too, it was the God of the Old Testament who hung on the cross. This God is also gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger, as we read in Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. He is faithful and has unfailing love, as we read in Psalm 143, verse 8. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. And he delights in his followers, as we read in Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. God plans to prosper people and give them hope, as we read in Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. He will no longer rebuke, but rejoices over his people with singing, as we read in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This, and so much more, is what God the Father is truly like. And so to finish today, think about the fact that Jesus represents God the Father. Why is this such a wonderful and hopeful truth, especially for those who sometimes might be afraid of God? Monday, April 23. The Love of Christ. Sin separated the human race from God. A yawning chasm opened between them, and unless that chasm closed, humanity was doomed to eternal destruction. 
The gulf was deep and dangerous, yet it took something utterly incredible to solve the problem of sin and to reunite sinful humanity with a righteous and holy God. It took one eternal with God himself, one as divine as God himself, to become a human being and, in that humanity, offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Question. Read John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 and 14, Philippians 2, 5 to 8. What do they teach us about who Jesus is? John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through to 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Christ was eternal and not dependent upon any one or anything for his existence. He was God, not the mere outward appearance of God, but God himself. His essential nature was divine and eternal. Jesus retained that divinity, but became a human being in order to keep the law in human flesh, and to die as a substitute for all those who have broken the law, which is all of us, as we read in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ became human without any advantage over other humans. He kept God's law, not through his internal divine power, but by relying upon the same external divine power available to any other human. Jesus was fully God and fully human. This means that the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3, was the same one who was found as a babe lying in a manger in Luke 2.16. This means that the one who is before all things and in him all things consist, Colossians 1.17, is the same one who, as a human child, increased in wisdom and stature, in Luke 2.52. This means that the one without whom nothing was made that was made, John 1.3, was the same one who was murdered by hanging on a tree, in Acts 5.30. If all this reveals to us Christ's love for us, and Christ's love for us is but a manifestation of the Father's love for us, then no wonder we have so many reasons to rejoice and be thankful. And so to finish today, read Romans chapter 3, verses 38 and 39. How does what we read in the study today give us powerful reasons to trust in what Paul says to us here? Romans 8, 
beginning at verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tuesday, April 24, The Love of the Spirit The Holy Spirit has been misunderstood almost as much as the Father. Some theologians have thought of the Spirit as the love between the Father and the Son. In other words, the Spirit would be merely affection between the Father and the Son. This means that He would be diminished to a relationship between two members of the Godhead and not a member Himself. But Scripture proves his personhood. Christians are baptized in his name along with the Father and Son, as we read in Matthew 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit glorifies Christ in John 16, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit convicts people, as you read in John 16 and verse 8, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He can be grieved, as you read in Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. He is a comforter in John 14:16 and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. And a counselor is the translation in the revised standard version. He teaches in Luke chapter 12 verse 12 for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say and he intercedes in Romans 8:26 likewise the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered and he sanctifies in 1st Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ said the Spirit guides people into all truth, in John 16, verse 13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. In short, the Holy Spirit is God, as are the Father and the Son. Together they are one God. Question. Everything the Spirit does reveals divine love. What are some of the things he does? Luke 12, 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
John 16, verses 8 through to 13. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you things to come. And Acts chapter 13 verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The greatest evidence that the Holy Spirit is God is the incarnation of Christ. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, as it says in Matthew 1.20. Only God could create like that. The Holy Spirit performed two opposite miracles for Christ. First, he brought the omnipresent Christ into the womb of Mary. Christ ascended to heaven, confined within that human body. Second, the Spirit brings Christ confined by his humanity and, in another inexplicable miracle, makes him present to Christians around the world. Thus, the Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, is working in our behalf. As Ellen White writes in Councils on Health, page 222, The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. End of quote. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love us equally and are working in order to save us into God's eternal kingdom. How can we, then, neglect so great a salvation? So, to finish today. How much comfort can we draw from the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all at work for our eternal good? Wednesday, April 25, Assurance of Salvation Some Seventh-day Adventists wonder if they will be saved. They lack assurance and long to know their future in terms of eternal life. They work hard to be good enough and yet know that they come up short. They look within and find little to encourage them in their journey through life. When we see the immense gap between the character of Jesus and our own character, or when we read a text such as, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it, Matthew 7.14, who of us doesn't have moments when we wonder if we are going to make it? To be prepared for the end time, people must have assurance of salvation in the present, They must revel in the reality of salvation in order to face the future unafraid. Yet, as we have seen, all the living persons of the Godhead are at work to save us. Thus, we can and should live with the assurance of our salvation. Question. 
read the following texts. What hope and assurance comes from them regarding salvation and what God has done for us and promises to do. First of all, Psalm 91, verses 15 and 16. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And Joel 2, verses 31 and 32. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And John ten twenty eight, And I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And Romans 10, verses 9 to 13, That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And First John chapter 5 verses 11 through to 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. We are called, even commanded, to live holy lives, But these lives are the result of having been saved by Christ, not the means of achieving that salvation. Although we must be faithful, even unto death, we must lean always on the gift of our only hope of salvation. God's people will be found faithful and obedient in the last days, a faithfulness and obedience that arises from the assurance of what Christ has done for them. Thursday, April 26, The Everlasting Gospel Question, read Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. What is the everlasting gospel? Revelation 14, beginning at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. The gospel is referred to here as everlasting. This is further evidence that God does not change. An unchanging God has an unchanging gospel. 
This eternal gospel gives assurance to all who are willing to accept it. The gospel reveals the unchanging love of God, and it's this message that needs to go to the world. Everyone needs a chance to hear it, which is why God has called his people to spread it. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And the question is, what more does this tell us about just how everlasting the gospel really is? We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Talk about an everlasting gospel. Even before the creation of this world, God's plan was for us to have salvation in Him. Look at some of the words here. Chose, predestined, good pleasure, adoption. Look at how much these two verses point to God's desire for us to have eternal life in Him. And the fact that God did all this in eternity past. Let's read that verse again. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And we're also going to look at Second Thessalonians 2.13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. These point so clearly to his grace and shows that our salvation comes not from anything we can do or from any creature merit, but totally as an act arising from God's own loving character. How could salvation come from anything we could do if we were elected to have that salvation in him even before we existed? The choice is for us to accept or reject it. And how is this election made manifest in the lives of the elect? As it says in Ephesians 1.4, to be holy and without blame before him in love. This too is what we have been chosen for. And so to finish today, we're called to spread the everlasting gospel to the world as part of the end time message prior to Christ's return. Why must we know and experience the reality of the everlasting gospel in our own lives before we can share it with others? Friday, April 27. We can have assurance of salvation, but we must not be presumptuous about it. Is there such a thing as a false assurance of salvation? Of course. And Jesus warned about it too, saying, 
In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These people made two fatal mistakes. First, despite whatever great things they had done in the Lord's name, they weren't doing the Lord's will, which was to obey his law. Jesus didn't say, Depart from me, you who are not sinless, or you who are not without fault, or who are not perfect. Instead, he described them as lawless, a translation of anomian, or without law. Second, notice their emphasis on themselves and what they had accomplished. Didn't we do this in your name? Or didn't we do this, do that in your name? Or didn't we do this other thing and all in your name too? Please, how far removed from Christ must they have been to point to their own works in an attempt to justify themselves before God? The only works that will save us are Christ's, credited to us by faith. Here is where our assurance exists, not in ourselves or in our works, but only in what Christ has done for us. You want assurance? Obey God's law and rest only in the merits of Christ's righteousness, and you will have all the assurance you need. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, Martin Luther reportedly said... When I look to myself, I don't know how I can be saved. When I look to Jesus, I don't know how I can be lost. What great wisdom is found in these words? Why is it a good idea to keep this sentiment ever before us? Two, dwell more on this idea that we have been chosen for salvation even before the foundation of the world. Why does this not mean that everyone will be saved? If people are not saved, will it be because God didn't choose them or because of the choices they made? Discuss this question in class. And three, how does the reality of the great controversy scenario help us to deal better with the reality of evil even in a world that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit love? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Introducing God, and it's about David Kim, who's a Seventh day Adventist business executive and the founder of the Nicodemus Society, an organization that shares the Adventist message with the wealthy, worldly, and well educated. A co worker asked Seventh day Adventist business executive David Kim about his favorite weekend activities while making small talk at a funeral. I go to church and spend time with family, David replied. The co-worker said he also liked to spend time with family, causing David to realize that he didn't want to discuss faith. 
The two men chatted about family. Then David said, We have talked about family for a while. Now, how about faith? The co-worker said quickly, I am an atheist. Why are you an atheist? David asked. The resulting conversation drew in other funeral guests and planted a seed that David hopes will lead to a Bible study. David says it's simple to bring to God into casual conversation. Here are some ways that he responds to everyday questions. How was the weekend? I had a great weekend. On Saturday, we went to church, and on Sunday, we went to the supermarket. How did you meet your wife? We met at church in Chicago. Do you still play the cello? Not like I used to, but I do teach my son, and I also have begun working with a Christian singer who has put together some interesting recording projects on the books of Daniel and Revelation. What do you do for fun? I spend most of my free time on activities related to my family and faith. How do you manage your ambition versus your desire for work-life balance? That can be a real challenge, but one of the most helpful things for me, and I don't know how you feel about these things, is my prayer life. Do you have any advice for how to be successful at work? One of the things I find most helpful is spending every morning in prayer and reading the Bible. It helps me to start every day focused on the big picture. David likens himself to a fly fisherman. Fly fishermen are always casting, he said. I try to put bait out there and allow the hungry fish to respond. Co-workers have asked for more information about God through such conversations, and David conducts two to four Bible studies a week. Two co-workers have been baptised. And this Sabbath I expect to be in the English-speaking church in Vienna in Austria. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.